Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from our website, BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, where the Canada-China relationship stands, plus BIV's tech panel on Netflix ads, Amazon's birthday, and ride-hailing moving forward in British Columbia. Here at BIV, we're accepting nominations for a number of awards programs. These include the BC CEO Awards, Influential Women in Business, and 40 Under 40. You can also nominate Chief Technology and Innovation Officers for our inaugural BC CTO Awards. Applications are now open. Visit BIV.com slash events for details. President Trump claimed recently that the U.S.-China relationship is, quote, right back on track. What is it? And what does this mean for Canada, whose relationship with China has steadily worsened over the last year? My guest today is Brett Stevenson, Director of Greater China with the Asia Business Trade Association. He's also co-chair of the Policy and Government Committee with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. He joins me on the line today from Calgary, where he just gave a talk at the Canada West Foundation. Brett, thanks so much for joining the show. All right, it's happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with that U.S.-China relationship, because it's a bilateral relationship, but it's one that really affects much of the world and has certainly affected us here in Canada. From where you sit, are things really back on track? Um, no. Um, I would say that the U.S. and China are in a very unusual situation. Uh, we're, the U.S. and China uh, relationship right now is in a long-term structural decline. This is a paradigm shift. This is not a normal downturn. Um, this has uh, been bubbling up for a number of years now, uh, where the U.S. Um, finally, I guess, has kind of sort of gotten to the point where China hasn't really been, in their perception, hasn't been acting uh, in good faith in terms of technology um, transfers. And so this trade war that, as everyone has said, is more, it's not really a, trade where this is about the, a battle or a conflict over the next generation trade technologies and it's pervasive um, and and I think that this is a long-term downturn um, you're going to continue to see uh, further deterioration of relations and lots of sniping back and forth in the future as we go along. When you put it like that long-term structural decline in your view, does that span political cycles in the U.S.? Is it more broader than certain political agendas? And it's really about U.S. values and wants versus Chinese values and wants for their economies? Yeah, so this is in, in the U.S., this has been a little bit of a, a change in, in the mentality of the uh, U.S.'s view towards China, and it's bipartisan. Uh, even towards the end of the Obama administration, you saw a lot of. Um, uh, people in the administration kind of losing patience with China. Um, they were getting quite annoyed at some of the kind of technology transfers, the intellectual property uh, concerns, tra- uh, trading trade secrets for market access, um, and and just the, the practices that China has been doing over the past couple of years um, has not um, been what the U.S. has not been very. Uh, like the, the, how China has acted in, the, in this respect. But it's, it's also on the other side of it is, um, I'd say it's perfectly natural for China to want to move ahead and up the value chain uh, in terms of its 
technology ambitions, it's totally normal for a country to be able to want to expand and, and compete in next generation technologies. Um, but the one I back to the U.S., I'd say it's, it, this is a bipartisan issue. Um, this is the one issue where Democrats and re- Republicans will both be in agreement. Um, even if Clinton had won in 2016 or someone else wins in 2020, I think that it's now that the train has left the station. It's politically impossible for uh, a Democrat or Republican to sound, you know, positive towards China and and do things that are positive towards China. Um, this goes all the way from the grassroots all the way up to Congress, uh, and even yeah. So it's it's just a an issue that I think is going to continue to dog the relationship for a long time and will continue to affect the other relationships around the world with U.S. and China and other countries. So what bearing then do you think this has on Canada's relationship, both with the U.S., but also with China? Well, um, obviously, you've seen the news and there's been kind of the commentary over Huawei and 5G and and the arrest of the two Canadians in in, uh, China and uh, Meng Wanzhou. Um, At at some point or another, as I kind of mentioned in my talk to the Canada West Foundation, I I mentioned that eventually one way or another, um, Canada was going to be brought into this. Um, Southeast Asia is largely also in, in this kind of competition between the two of them now in terms of geopolitics, but it's it's going to be uh, continuous. And so Canada, I think, in some cases would caught a bit by surprise about how it was brought into this conflict. And, it, and I think we haven't had a, um, a, a solid response a little bit. There's been mixed messaging sent on terms of Canada's response to this crisis. Hmm. When it comes to how we might better respond, what are some of the options that Canada has? Because when we compare ourselves to the might of the U.S. economy or the might of the Chinese economy, it seems like the ball is really in their court that they can maybe, they have more leeway to push us around than we have to push back against what they do. What are our options here? Well, I mean, it's quite limited because on the one hand, we want to respect and portray that we are a country that respects the rule of law. And so we we follow due process in the law. Um, and so when we respect that, we will we can't get rid of an extradition treaty. We can't. We can't be doing things that are um, would impact uh, Canada's stature. Um, and as, as you said in the question, it, it, there are um, it, what can we do? Um, there are, I mean, one of the things I think we need to do is tone down the rhetoric, stop sending mixed messages, and maybe have a conversation at, in a non-governmental way, um, and continue to uh, show to China that. This is, you know, it impacts uh, Canadian perceptions about China. And I think that, you know, it's having a, a country that wants to have international respect and whatnot, it, it's very important that to de-escalate things in the future uh, because it, it's just, a, you know, even in these conflicts or these rivalries, it's always important in, for consideration of other countries' perceptions. Um and also to show, to also to show that one company should not dominate a complete bilateral relationship. Um, and there's a number of other things that we should be doing. I, I I also believe that we should really be Canada should be really looking at trying to expanding TPP membership in the region, having the rules on trade 
to a more transparent form of way and really kind of showing Canada can uh, expand in, in relations with Southeast Asia, India, Australia, uh, Japan, and Korea to show that China is a country in Asia, but it's not the only country. Mm-hmm. That's a very good distinction to make. What would you say is the view in Asia of China's trade actions aimed at Canada? Um, well, I think that uh, in terms of some of the other countries that have endured some of the, um, I guess, some of the practices that China has been, uh, shown against other countries with political decisions that countries have made they have not liked, um, like Korea, you know, with uh, back a few years ago over sad, the sad missiles, uh, Japan um, back in 2012, India over Dockland, the Dockland crisis uh, in 2016, 17. A lot of these things that really are showed that, you know, countries are used to these kinds of things. And I think the message, you know, they would give to us is, you know, don't blink, stay the course, and eventually... I think China may come around to the point where it really went too far. Um, but the perception is like, yeah, we've been there. We've done that. We know how, how this is. And so it's also just kind of trying to, their opinion would not to say too much, but just also kind of maybe they would politely agree with our, our predicament. And, and um, yeah, I, I can't say much more than that on that. Mm. When it comes to perhaps China's trade actions in some of these other countries that have gone through this, and if Canada were to maybe look to them for that advice, you said staying the course might be one option. Are there many examples of countries that have done the opposite, that have pushed back, and it was either successful or unsuccessful, and we should be aware of how that went? Um, not that I'm aware of. I, I, I'd say that a lot of those countries didn't really push back aggressively. Um, but I think they, yeah, they just maybe communicated at a political level in some cases to show that this is not helpful for either or and to just continue to ride out the crisis and and, and just let it kind of run its course. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't, can't really comment too much on that question. I wonder, too, of course, uh, being here in Vancouver, we've been following very closely the arrest of Huawei CFO Meng Wangzhou and, and everything that has followed that incident, is there any short-term solution in your view that doesn't involve a resolution on that matter? Or are some of the trade actions we're seeing so closely tied with what's become a fairly politicized event? Um, I don't think there's much that we can do in terms of, of um, finding a solution to that. Um, uh, you know, the Chinese government has is quite clear that Meng Wanzhou should be released. Um, but I, I think that it's important also that Canadian companies in Canada should be aware that business can still be done, but it needs to be kind of kept under the radar with Chinese companies and our counterparts in China. I don't think it's um, China's a good market to invest in and, and do business in. Um, it's obviously there's some challenges in terms of market access issues and non-tariff barriers and whatnot, but it's it's um, that will continue to plague the political part and the economic part. But I do believe there are some elements that we can do um, under the radar with business there. Um, but it's there's not going to be a short-term fix to this. We need to kind of 
follow our commitments via extradition treaty and uh, and with and kind of the justice issues. Explain for me what some of those options might be under the radar. Do you mean perhaps driven by the private sector itself looking and continuing business operations and less sort of grand government gestures around that? Um, no, I, I can't point to specific any examples. I mean, I just hear through what I hear in, a, in, in China that business is still going. Canadian companies are still doing business there. Um, some things might be impacted. Um, it's, but it's not a, been a complete breakdown in how private businesses have acted. And so it, I think things are still going and Canadians are, some Canadians are still living in, in China and doing things quite freely. So it's, it's not all doom and gloom entirely. Mm-hmm. Do you think then, has there been long-term damage dealt to the Canada-China relationship or you see an opportunity perhaps down the road and not too far down the road that things recover and maybe get back on track for us? Yeah, I think there has been some damage done. Um, it's now, in terms of the poli- domestic politics in Canada, I think it would be politically difficult um, for a government to approve uh, Huawei 5G. Um, that's just it's just the politics wouldn't look very good um, while we have two Canadians in jail over retaliation on that. And Canadians have seen on the news uh, just how uh, the Chinese government has um, made some concerns over our exports to China. And I think that um, they obviously everyone sees the connection between the arrest of Meng Wanzhou and the um, commodity uh, exports and the prevention of those exports into the market. So I think there has been some damage in that respect. That said, there has been some people calling politi- in, 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 in politics and also in the media, that in columns, that we need to have a reset. I tend to believe that we, yeah, we'll have a reset, but in the Chinese government's eyes, I don't believe that a reset, they will they will they will they won't do a reset from their perspective. They know what they want out of the Canada and China relationship. Uh, they're not going to change. They will smile and carry on, pretend that they've done a, re- a reset. But it's not. But the reset, I believe, needs to come on Canada's side. It needs. We need fundamental uh, more reassessments of the China market. We need a lot more people that understand what China is in the market in our decision-making capacity in government or, or think tanks or in trade associations in Canada that actually understand what China is. And, and I think that, uh, you know, in the future, our Chinese counterparts would really much would really approve of, of, of us having a better understanding of what China is, what the China market is and some of the constraints that they have and, and opportunities that they that we see and they see could do better. Um, and also some of the challenges that they're dealing with. I think that our people in our the relationship between Canada and China, like some of the China hands in Canada, haven't really. Um, some of them haven't done a very good job of, of preparing us for what's going on in China, um, and so that's why I think we were caught a little bit surprised last December. Given your connection with the Asia Business Trade Association, I'm curious what you've heard from business leaders in the region, and perhaps what. The messages, what should they consider? What should they understand about where Canada finds its relationship with China at this point in time? Well, I, I think there was a, you know, a time period early this year where there was a serious concern about traveling to China and some of the business. I think that that has 
um, past a little bit. I think it's not it's not as um, as dangerous for Canadian business leaders to travel to China. Um, I think business can still be done, and Chinese businesses would love to interact with uh, Canadian business people to continue on discussions or look for areas to to work. I don't think it's it's not all doom and gloom in the relationship. Um, I do think that what I would, I guess I just rephrasing this again and repeating this is that um, Canadian business people do need a better set of understanding of what the China market is and understand China a little bit better, the Chinese government decision-making process. I think a lot of that will really improve their ability to do business in China and Asia. Um, that is that is quite different from the old approach where I do believe that some of our trade associations in Canada have really sold a bill of goods to Canadian businesses and SMEs um, about the China market. It's all been opportunities, but there are there are some challenges that were there um, over the past couple of years. It's not an easy place to just go and quit, make quick profits. You gotta you gotta be able to um, understand the market. And understand that there are some daily challenges vis-a-vis in, in cybersecurity, intellectual property, licensing, uh, rules and regulations that are not very clear at times, uh, understanding language, the culture. Um, those are the messages that I say to Canadian uh, businesses. Um, and also to not think in terms of a Canadian Canadian way of thinking. You need to think in terms of, of, of an Asian Asia business uh, style uh, that is that is not Canadian and looks at more of the business aspects of things and um, not go kind of stay away from the Boy Scout attitude, so to speak. <laughs> Brett, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on with your insight. That's Brett Stevenson, Greater China Director with the Asia Business Trade Association. Netflix ads, Amazon's birthday, and ride-hailing in British Columbia, they're all up for discussion today. Joining the show as they do every week for BIV's tech panel, we have Linda Fawkes, CEO of Glue Technology Society, with me here in Vancouver. And on the line from Toronto, Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Let's start with Netflix. There's a new survey from Hub Entertainment Research that suggests Netflix could lose almost a quarter of its subscribers if it started running ads on the platform. Linda, I think the big question here is, can Netflix successfully monetize, because that's its aim, without sacrificing some of its user base? Yeah, I think Netflix can. They've disrupted how we view TV. Um They've entered us into the world of streaming and spending all day on the couch watching a series. Uh, so yeah, they, they've redefined that for us. And I believe they're going to redefine how ads are used in the content that we're watching. So I don't think it's going to be the typical 15 second or 30 second ads that we see in, in old school um, advertising on TV shows and movies, um, but more unique uh, product placement things like we're starting to see within Stranger Things and how Amazon's starting to dip their toe in the water of how they include brands into their programming without disrupting their subscription ad-free model with pre-roll, mid-roll, and end-roll annoying ads that nobody wants. <laughs> Unless, of course, the subscription is cheaper, then maybe we would 
take ads if the subscription rate was cheaper, but I don't see Netflix going traditional ad route. It's a good point, Ali, because I think what this data suggests in the survey is that we're fairly ad averse here in society. But do you think Netflix can pull it off? They can maybe recreate how we view ads and come up with some kind of freemium or other model that allows users, keeps them engaged? I mean, I certainly think they're well positioned to be able to take advantage of it. Uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of the ads uh, being being adverse to advertisements is probably as a result of what Netflix and uh, others have trailblazed for us. So now it's sort of become the standard where we don't get advertisements in our face and we're used to it. So if, I, if we can rely on anybody to figure out a way back uh, in a way that's good for the user, I think Netflix, uh, you know, should be able to, to front run this one. And, and I totally agree with Linda. I think we're going to see just creativity here. We're going to see them. Uh, be smart with product placements and other types of advertising, but I don't think we're gonna we're gonna see the traditional types of advertising in Netflix platform. And this study clearly shows that respondents uh, don't want that. And uh, I think 23%, um, you know, 23% drop in their subscription base would be quite substantial for them. So I, I don't think they'll you know they'll take their chances. Yeah, that's 14 million users, I think. So and all, but uh, Netflix needs money. They they threw 19 billion at content and programming, and they're gonna have to double that, they're going to have to raise those stakes considerably year over year to get enough content to start competing with the Disney's and Universal's and all these uh, other people coming on into the streaming world. So how they get yeah. money uh, without incorporating some sort of advertising, Wall Street is is dubious over, right? Wall Street's not happy about yeah. this. Shareholders are not happy about this. They want to see some ad revenue coming in. So I think they'll figure out the advertising piece, but but hopefully in a way we can all we can all still binge and gorge and not be disrupted by some ads, right? It sure, I mean, it sure does. It sure does make it easier when you control the content, right? I mean, and that's that's Netflix's big advantage here. So, yeah, you have to think uh, they're going to take advantage of that, and um, and you know we'll we'll definitely see. I think uh, you know time will tell, and um, you know your, your Stranger Things. The Stranger Things example is a great example. I mean, we're already seeing it right right in the show now, and so. Uh, you know, I, I like to think that that's the way of the future, at least disruptive. The question is, are they going to be able to maintain the quality control of the of the content by, you know, by by selectively placing products into the into the shows? And while I think that that's the way they'll trailblaze in the future, it kind of makes sense when we're going to see the other streaming services offering an ad based free subscription, like Spotify model. So ad based free subscription, or you pay to remove the ads. Other streaming services are going to do that. And so I can't, I kind of can't see why, I know I'm saying the opposite of what I just said, but I almost can't see why they wouldn't offer a version of that, right? They're going to start to have to compete on price. And this is a world in which um, Netflix is increasing their pricing. They're testing out increased prices across their markets. So, so perhaps we might see a Spotify model from them sooner than we see them disrupting this uh, in TV experience ad model. That's an interesting point. I wonder if all the streaming services that either exist today or we know are coming out, if Disney is not primed to be a big winner in this, just given the amount of content and how it's integrated across in-person experiences, streaming experiences, movie experiences, they could do this fairly seamlessly. Absolutely. Disney's a, Disney, NBC, Universal, Warner's coming on. Um, yeah. Absolutely. These these companies with massive libraries, they can leverage. And that's one of Netflix's holes in their market, right? Is they're at yeah. the mercy of the libraries that are coming up for auction. Uh, they only own yeah. one of the shows of the top shows that they are showing right now. So they're really at the mercy of, 
of those libraries and they're losing some of their biggest shows that people watch, which is bizarrely still Friends and Grey's Anatomy and <laughs> NCIS and oh my yeah. gosh. It's kind of nostalgic. There's so much good content out there, people, really. I know. It's yeah, got, and these and these and these providers are these providers also have the advantage of of just watching what Netflix is doing and and sort of just taking the best of all worlds. So if if the advertising model that they choose doesn't work, I'm sure these uh these competitors will be watching. Yeah, and they're also these competitors are in the studio system. They know how to create shows. They know how to create content. They know how to make that content profitable. So that's where they have an edge. You know, it seemed the streaming piece was hard for them to figure out. It took them a long time to get there, but now they've got both pieces. So it'll be really interesting the next five or 10 years. Will Netflix grow from 150 million to 300 million users, as people are saying, or will they become kind of just an also ran amongst these executive content creators or these excellent content creators in Hollywood? We'll see. Seems like it has to be a win for consumers, at the very least, because you get so much variation and competition from these big players. Speaking of disruption, of course, it's hard to mention that word without talking about Amazon. And it's been 25 years since Amazon first set out on its journey, which is really hard to believe. Ali, if we look back at that first quarter century, what do you think really defined that period of time for Amazon? I think Amazon was probably the first time that, you know, the market and investors questioned, you know, could a could a business be focused on growth and not profitability and get away with that for some extended period of time. And if you go back and look at Amazon's sort of first decade, they never made any money and they were they were they were bleeding money left right and center but they kept coming back to we're you know we're growing our business we're investing in growth and and this is probably the first time amazon probably was the first time we ever heard that if you go back and sort of look at look at recent history and and you know you can see what happened after that right you have the ubers of the world the facebooks of the world all of these companies that ipo'd and have gone public on a story of growth uh, I think Amazon, that, that's the way I look at Amazon, you know, a $1,000 investment back in 1997, uh, somewhere in the $1.2 million range today. So, uh, you know, if you had made that investment and believed in the growth story, uh, you would be a very wealthy person right now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also fair to say one of the things we have to talk about with Amazon, Linda, is how they disrupted retail, how they've changed the way we shop. Is this permanent? At this point, can we say that the world has changed definitively and it's not going back because of Amazon? The retail apocalypse is has begun because of Amazon, largely. Yeah, absolutely. This is permanent. Uh, we won't go back to traditional bricks and mortar stores that are filled with so much stuff we can't find what we need. Um, bad sales and service experiences in a lot of these stores. Amazon has changed so much about the way we find product, the way we value our time shopping. Um the the one-click purchase, even online, is a simple thing that is deceptively amazing when you just click and buy. The subscription purchasing for your uh, regular uh, household items, for instance, is a really deceptively simple thing. We can't get in bricks and mortar. Um, so, yeah, it's not going anywhere. Amazon e-commerce obviously is going to define the future. Of course, then Amazon is popping in 3,000 Go stores around uh, North America soon. So we're going to see a new version of bricks and mortar meets e-commerce. But they have definitely uh, redefined what retail looks like. And store closures are proof of that across North America. 
Mm-hmm. And the follow-up question is, we've seen what Amazon's done in the last 25 years. What is it going to do in the next 25? And Ali, we've spoken about on the show before, it's focus on the financial sector and how that could be a huge play for Amazon. What do you think we might see in the next two and a half decades? Well, I mean, uh, notwithstanding, re- I mean, re- regulators allowing them to do so, I, I think you're going to see them uh, snap up more and more companies and, and grow or just grow through acquisition. Uh, I mean, these companies that have reached this critical mass, that's pretty much the only net, only way for them to grow at this point. You know, they've, they've Amazon has dominant market share in almost all of its areas that it, it operates in. Uh, and online shopping, it's number one uh, by a long shot. And uh, so now, you know, the only way they're going to grow from here is by acquiring uh, new businesses and or getting into different verticals. And uh, the banking world is one you just mentioned. But uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're probably going to go after health and other areas as well and uh, try to take advantage of the aging market. So, you know, Amazon has still has a lot of growing to do. I think investors still believe it's, uh, you know, has a lot of upside from here. That's why it's, the stock continues to rise. People are betting on its future. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things that are also out of its control. And we'll see what the regulatory environment looks like uh, in, the, in the long call. And we'll see if government allows them to continue to expand the way they are. Yeah. And I think this Amazon Basics uh, move that Amazon is making by creating sort of Amazon generic versions of products that their data is telling them are moving. For instance, Amazon Batteries, Basics Batteries outsell all other battery brands on Amazon. Uh, The EU is looking at those practices. So I can see in the next 25 years, perhaps a bit of breaking up of some of those pieces of Amazon that might become anti-competitive. I also see in the next 25 years, this issue of how we are, they are dealing with workers in their warehouses. Um, Will those workers just be replaced by robots? That seems to be a lot easier for Amazon. You know, is this Amazon Prime Day going to become Amazon Strike Day every year? Is this where the workers are going (laughs) to take their chance to say, make better working conditions for us? So the last 25 years, Amazon has brought back Dickensian workhouse models to our workforce in really horrible ways, I think. Um, And I hope over the next 25 that will be resolved, hopefully not to the detriment of the humans who rely on those jobs. But I don't hold out a lot of hope for that, actually. Well, you mentioned the growth of the Amazon Go stores. And one thing I found interesting is these facility-wide strikes in Europe that start taking place around Prime Day. Amazon says they did not at all affect their fulfillment ability. And so it does make you wonder, they, they went after growth hard. At what cost is a question many might ask, but it's at such a level now. Do they still need people? Are they moving toward more roboticization and automation? And have we maybe missed that opportunity to step in and, and impose regulations when it comes to labor? It feels to me like we've missed it. I think that we are allowing these people to work in these conditions. We are, by the way, we being government consumers, Prime Day being a great example. We're all looking for cheaper, faster uh, delivery cheaper products. So someone's paying the price on that. You know, John Oliver's piece last week was a good little summary of um, his take on what Amazon's doing in their warehouse and what e-commerce generally is doing. But um, we we need to be careful about where this is moving. And yeah, robots, it just makes a, a logical sense that lo- robots are the, pe- are the vehicles driving up and down the alley, rows, grabbing the products and sticking mm-hmm. them in boxes. How much do humans need to do that? In, a, in an environment where humans need these jobs, they're willing to work yeah. these jobs because they need the money, right? So I mean, it's a desperate a, time. 
the best example is that Amazon already killed the cashier. And, uh, you know, and that's just the first of many jobs that Amazon will, will have killed. Uh, if you go, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when we look back, there will be no such thing as cashiers. And you can thank Amazon for that. And I kind of do thank Amazon for that, actually. <laughs> I like getting yeah, out fast. It's like, are, really? Jobs are jobs. <laughs> they are jobs. jobs so are let's, jobs. so are we going to tax the robots? There's another conversation, right? So how are we going to get this money back into the system? It's a good question. Right. Because it's, it's about, it's less about the job. It's more, I think, about the person behind it or who would fill it, right? So how do we then begin training people who were cashiers for other employment opportunities with Amazon or with another company. Basic universal income. Is that what Amazon will bring mm-hmm. us in the next 25 years? Help to bring along. And hmm. Amazon housing and Amazon. That's oh boy. <laughs> it's turning into a weird sci-fi kind of dystopian <laughs> thing. Some utopia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sure Amazon's going to give us too much to talk about in the, the tech panels over the years. If we make it to another 25 years on this show, we'll see. But our, our final topic for today, we're bringing the conversation back home. Ride hailing companies will now be allowed to apply for permits in British Columbia starting September 3rd. This has been a very long journey and government says they will hit the roads as early as September 16th. Ali, you're in Toronto right now, so I want to throw this to you first. Ride hailing, of course, has been in operation there for much longer than it has here. How similar, how different are the ride hailing experiences in these respective provinces shaping up to be? Because we're looking at here a made in BC model that comes with some catches. Yeah, it sure does. And uh, but I mean, I guess BC won't be totally unique in having a special class of driver's license. There are there is a number of jurisdictions across North America that have that, uh, including Calgary, I believe, uh, is one of them. So it it can work. It's not as uh, you know, it's not as good for the consumer. The consumer, you know, ultimately more options are better for the consumer, drives costs down uh, and sort of makes the whole experience uh, ultimately better because you can hold more drivers accountable to performance. Uh, that being said, you know, I guess this, this you know, if, if, if the government is truly, if their intentions are truly good and they're trying to control quality and control insurance costs and all the things that uh, from a risk standpoint are, are, are issues with more people on the roads, then uh, you know, restricting class uh, class of driver's licenses does make sense from that point of view. So uh, it's just the, the real, you know, the real crux of it will be just to, ha- you know, how do you balance, um, how do you balance getting drivers on the road with these controls? Because, you know, I mean, as an example, Lyft, Lyft doesn't operate with uh, in any in any jurisdiction that has this uh, special class of driver's license. So right away, you've knocked out uh, Uber's second uh, biggest competitor out of the out of the BC market if you have this. Uh, if you have this class of, of system and that just on its own doesn't bode, bode well for the for the BC consumer. Linda, I think the concern for many too is how much is this going to cost and is it a competitive option compared to a cab? Does it simply become about the method with which you hail and the cost is the same? I mean, that's a big question for consumers. Yeah, I think that BC is going to cost, what is it going to cost each car? $5,000 a year for to get the car on the road? Uh, not to mention what it costs to get your class four license. I I don't see this being a whole lot different in BC than the taxi service we have now. Uh, maybe it'll be faster for me to get an Uber uh, ride, hail an Uber ride, than it would be for me to find a yellow cab. Uh, maybe they'll be able to cross boundaries where taxis aren't doing that. Perhaps that will help me. I don't see cost really help. I, I don't see cost as a benefit here. Um, 
I think it's going to even itself out. And I think uh, Ali's right. Lyft is not going to come into this market. We are going to be safer. We'll have better um, educated and safer drivers here, which I think is good, especially when we look at what happened in Ontario last year with that young man who died in the back of an Uber with a very inexperienced driver, it seems. So better, safer drivers are good. Um, but this is not going to be the Uber that we see in the other cities when we all go travel and get to jump in an Uber and a Lyft and immediately find a car and have competitive pricing. Is it just going to be constant surge pricing? I don't know. But I don't, I don't see it being super cheap compared to taxis. Well, I wonder too, because it's taken us uh, comparatively a long time to figure out the ride hailing piece for cars, might we actually see scooters and bikes and other modes of transportation really proliferate in our jurisdictions here before we really figure out the kind of ride hailing model in cars that we see in other areas. It seems like there are <laughs> ride hailing 2.0 versions that are out there in other cities and doing really well before you even have ride hailing 1.0. Well, that's what we talked about last week. Hey, Ali, the scooters, yeah. scooters, yeah. scooters everywhere, scooters and bike lanes, scooters all over the place. It's very Vancouver. It feels very Vancouver mm-hmm. to have people hopping on a scooter rather than hailing an Uber. Yeah, I think right. I think ride hailing, sort of 1.0, Haley, as you put it, is going to be an evolution. I, you know, hopefully this is step one, and you know, we 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 get it out there. We finally have Uber. Uh, you know, you give it six months, you give it a year. We start to get feedback from uh, you know from the from the from the passengers and from the drivers, and we start to evolve the evolve the product for everybody. And hopefully, the government stays on top of it. Uh, uh, whomever is in uh, in power, and uh, and uh, you know, and improves. And in, in a year from now, or two years from now, you know, the made in BC approach works for people who live in BC. Yeah, exactly. That'd be awesome. And maybe even it makes makes our taxi service better, right? Maybe they rise to yep. the competitive challenge, and maybe the personal transportation board allows them to cross boundaries, and we can have a better ride hailing experience across the province. That would be a perfect win. That sounds great. I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One will continue to watch. Ali, Linda, thank you both for coming on. Thanks. Thank you. That's Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa, joining us on the line from Toronto and in studio here in Vancouver, Linda Focus, CEO of Glue Technology Society. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or on Stitcher. You can also listen to all episodes over at BIV.com slash audio. For more business news, visit BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.